This is Radiance Tape Number JD88, a message by Jim Durkin entitled Proper and Improper Authority. I don't know why God chooses a man to be an elder as opposed, let's say, to a man to be a deacon or a man to be an apostle or a man to be a prophet or one to be in helps, governments, miracles. I don't know what the basis of choice is. I know Paul said in one place, he has put me in the ministry and that he counted me faithful, but that in itself cannot be a qualification because many men are faithful even unto death and they're not called to be apostles. So see, the point that I'm making is because a man is an apostle, he cannot claim any particular unusual characteristic about himself and pat himself on the back that he is something special because he is not something special. As I read over the qualifications for an elder, those are good qualifications and certainly every elder must walk in those, we want to call them qualifications, I think they're merely marks of character or marks of learning, but yet when you read them, are they not the marks that any Christian man should have? They're just, they're very simple things. That he should have his family in submission. That there should be peace in his home. That his children should not be accused of riot or unruly. That he should be a man of the word. That he should walk with a good reputation toward them that are without. These are just qualifications that every Christian should have. Same thing with Paul remarking, he put me in the ministry and that he counted me faithful. That's something that every Christian should say. That I'm a faithful man by the grace of God. He's called me to be that. So the basis of this choice then must be sovereign choice. The Bible says no man takes this honor to himself save he to whom it is given. But that doesn't mean that that honor is the only honor that exists. To be called is a marvelous thing, but the highest calling of all is to be called to be a child of God. One of the great failings in time past of the church, and for a large part it still exists today, maybe for the most part, is that our basis of relationship has been completely wrong. And I think of a truth the people wanted to be that way, and those called to the, quote, ministry wanted to be that way, because it does not require as much of us as the relationship that I'm going to begin to build on here. You see, whereas in the world I am able to relate to a person on other than the highest of all relationships, I can relate to a man as I am the client and he is the doctor. So I know him all of my life as Dr. Jones, Dr. Smith, Dr. Thomas, Dr. whatever, but I never know him as a man. I have no relationship to him other than. And his business is to be professionally nice, professionally firm, to give professional orders, to allow me to explode professionally. If I were to go to a psychiatrist, he is to be 
professionally, my friend. And one of the ideas of psychiatry, I think it's changing now, but for a long time it was, is the doctor never gets involved with his patient. He remains aloof. He remains detached. He remains separated from. Now he's being paid so much an hour to be a professional friend. Hello, Mr. Durkin. Hello, James. Hello, Jim. Hello. See, and each time we're getting more friendly, but not really. It's still Dr. So-and-so psychiatrist, Jim Durkin, client. Dr. So-and-so surgeon, Jim Durkin, client. Dr. So-and-so MD, Jim Durkin, client. Jim, how are you? I wish we'd get to see each other at other times, but my, I want that, 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 that professional talking. Now tell me what's wrong with you. All right, now we've had the amenities. Now I tell him what's wrong with me. He treats me. We say, sit down. Well, now, then, what are you doing? Well, I'm doing this. Ah, ha, ha. Oh, my, I see. Oh, okay, that's it. Now you've had your professional 10 minutes or 20 minutes or 30 minutes or whatever, whatever it is you're paying for. If I'm dealing with a psychiatrist, I can professionally blow up at it. I can vent my hatred or my anger. And he sits there, mm -hmm. Mm hmm And I'm going, and furthermore, I feel like killing you and everybody, and I will destroy the earth. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. $20 an hour, professional blow-up artist. All right. Now, I do not decry this. These men are doing the best they know how to do, but I'm saying the relationship is one not of the highest calling, but a professional relationship. And in the church, many times, maybe without anybody intending it to be so, or maybe nobody even knowing it ought to be different, we have developed professional relationships. Pastor, people. Deacons, pastor, trustees, so forth and so on. So the banker, professional man, meets the pastor, professional man, and they discuss their problem. Quote, we have a problem. And then they separate. The person in the church comes to the pastor and says, Pastor, I have a problem. Professional relationship. The pastor professionally makes an appointment. It isn't wrong to make appointments. It's what's behind the appointment. Sometimes it's merely a thing of convenience, but sometimes it's the thing of gaining the psychological atmosphere that will permit the professional to function. You realize if you come to an office and you make an appointment, and there is a secretary, and you have to go through five or six other doors to finally get into the inner sanctum, you have arrived where something is going to take place. Now, those relationships have always failed. They have never produced life because they were never meant by God to be any kind of a relationship at all. There can be no such basis for relationship as pastor and people. And so God has called us. It isn't easy to see it. God has called us into the highest 
of all relationships, and that is that we are called to be brethren. And when you first say it, it doesn't sound like much at all. Say, well, yeah, we know that, but now what's your title? See, because we're hung up with the world's idea. Are you a pastor? Are you elder here? Are you a deacon? Are you a... Oh, no, I'm just a sheep. (laughs) Or I'm just one of the brothers. You know, see, and you can almost see in the guy saying it, Oh, no, I'm just one of the... He's... (laughs) See, we're saying, Are you one of the elders? Well, see, in our minds, there hangs upon us this status concept that we're climbing our way up to some high point. And our idea is maybe like apostle is the highest of all the offices. So you start out as sheep, you become a deacon, you work up to an elder, then you can either be a pastor, evangelist, or teacher. See, those three we kind of see as kind of like each other because they're kind of expressed in the church. But prophet and apostle seem kind of mysterious. They're not really. As a matter of fact, I can tell you they're mysterious because I don't know what they are. That's what's mysterious about them. But then we say, someone says, brother, I think you're a a prophet. (laughs) Maybe you're right. I feel kind of spaced out most all the time. (laughs) Now, it's strange enough when you call a person a prophet, he kind of feels that way. You know, like just walking through space like this and doesn't land too hard. Then you say to another man, I feel you may be an apostle. (laughs) See, now these words have all kinds of carnal meanings behind them, you know? So in our minds, we have pictures of these guys, and the people who did it are kind of like the people who carved the statues and painted the pictures. Because here we see an apostle, he's always looking at the people. See, and you just see him looking. But every time they make a picture of a prophet, he's... See? Now, where did they get that idea? The prophets are looking up, the apostles are looking at. And the pastors are always... <laughs> so we have these pictures. So we say, oh, I can tell that man is a pastor because he has such a sweet face. And I must be an apostle because he looks so mean. And, uh, you know, so we have all different kinds of viewpoints. But our thinking, until God gives us an enlightenment is based on that concept of what our relationships are. That our relationships have to do with where am I on the totem pole? Where am I on the status chart? Where am I on the corporate organizational chart? Am I on the bottom rung? If I moved up to number two, three, can I get to the top place before my years run out? I want to tell you how you get to the top place. You get to the top place in this wonderful relationship that God has brought us into by simply believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and you get to the top place. Hallelujah. That's the relationship. That's the highest calling, the highest relationship, the blessed fellowship. Everything is tied up in us grasping that one true picture and one true understanding that you are all brethren, Jesus said. Me. 
That we are all the sheep of His pasture. That we are all the family of God. And that simple relationship obtains among us. Now, every other thing that you ever see in the body of Christ, and I want you to hear this word carefully and let it get deep into your spirit. Every other thing that you see in the body of Christ is merely a function, a way by which a brother functions. See, he's a brother. We're brothers. Now, to say that with words is one thing. To make it a reality is, I've got to give myself to you. You must give yourself to me. But it's not hard to establish a relationship as apostle. See? Because all I have to say is, I'm an apostle, and the Lord back it up, let's say, with some way or other. And several people say, I believe Jim is an apostle. And then practically everyone says, that man is an apostle. Now we establish a relationship, but that relationship is dead. That relationship may let you hear my words if they are powerful words. On the other hand, I want to tell you, if I stand before you then as a failure, you're puzzled by it because you've got an idea about what an apostle ought to be like. He ought to be some tremendous powerhouse. He ought to be able to speak in words that just, just even though when we read in the Bible, Paul talks about his words that sometimes the people said his words were crude, that he was rude. One of the versions say he didn't have good pulpit manners, you know. Say, well, I don't even know if he had a pulpit, so I don't know about the pulpit manners, you know. Standing out there dodging rocks, I don't know how you can have pulpit manners. You know, you walk into a church and you stand there like this before the people, and you have pulpit manners. You know, it's somebody pelting a stone at me, I go, wow, They say, wow, that guy's undignified up there. Well, I'd rather be undignified to have a lump on my head, you know. I'm reminded of Smith Wigglesworth, that blessed man of about 50, 60 years ago. God raised him up to be a mighty evangelist, and he was telling about falling in love with his wife, knowing it was God's will for him to marry her. They were all in the Salvation Army in the early days, and that was the days when, you know, they'd go out in the street corners in old England, and they'd throw all kinds of stuff at them, dead rats, rotten tomatoes, rotten eggs, and so on. And some of them, they connected with them, too, quite a few of them. And sometimes rocks, and they'd beat them up and so forth. But his wife would get out there and preach, kind of as an evangelist. He'll come to Jesus and so forth. And he didn't know her at this time, but he said he first noticed her when she gracefully, he said it was the most graceful dodging of rotten tomatoes that he had ever seen in his life. And he thought, surely that's the most beautiful thing I've ever, I can almost picture, you know, as she's preaching, like zip like this. And <laughs> zoom, zoom, zoom. And just keep right on preaching. He said, wow, I'm falling in love, you know. Hallelujah. Well, I don't know how God always does these things, but it's a delight to see how he does it, you know. The point is, though, we have our ideas fixed sometimes, you know, and, and we read part of the Scripture, we don't read the other part of the Scriptures, and we make our relationships on the wrong basis. Relationship, don't relate to me as an apostle. I was back in Chicago, and the brothers were kind of laughing with me a little bit, and I asked them, well, they were laughing first without me laughing, because I didn't know what they were laughing about. And uh, I found out what it was later, that uh, a group in Chicago there came to New York to meet us. And the reason they came is they first met Scott Snedeker. One of the brothers from Chicago went up to Alaska met Scott Snedeker. And Scott dealt with him there, and uh, they had some doctrinal differences, but he felt something in Scott and saw something in the work. He said, we need this in Chicago, and we just can't seem to get it there, no matter how hard we try, it never works. 
So he said to Scott, sometime you ever come down, come and visit me. I don't think he ever thought Scott would, but in the Lord's timing, Scott went back to New York, as you remember, decided to stop off in Chicago and see the brother, and did. Ministered to him a little more. And the man said, well, I'm interested in what I'm seeing and hearing. I remember what you did there, and now you got to work here. I, I want to see this. So Scott came on to New York. I needed a little time of rest back there, so I took a week to just rest. And I sent Tom Kennedy and Dave Sapansky and Scott Snedeker back to Chicago to minister. And when they got back there, they ministered powerfully to this group. First, the group was uptight because they realized now this was a kind of a, they were going to have to make a decision. They didn't want to do that. They wanted to avoid the decision. But as they kept listening to the brothers, they were powerfully moved. So this is what we've been looking for. This is the kind of direction we need. This is the help we need. And the elders sat down with Scott and Tom and Dave and said, we've never met Jim Durkin personally, never even heard a tape except the ones they played there. But they said, I want you to listen to this, and please understand it's no words pointing to me because it's kind of funny what happened afterward. Said, we've not met him, but we see him in you. Said, we see the authority, the certainty in which you're moving, and yet there's no pushiness. You just simply know what God has done, and you're speaking it, and we want to go and meet him and come under that authority. So here they pack up, and they come to New York, meet us, sit there a few days, takes a picture, goes back to his people, asks us to come. Matter of fact, he makes a special call, says, please, when you go back to California, if there's any way, well, we did have to go back. That way, went out of our way several hundred miles, was all right. We thought we should go. And I had a good meeting, and then they told me afterwards, they passed my picture around. It was one of those where I was standing there with just a shirt on, no coat that covers up some things. <laughs> Anyhow, one of the brothers looked at it. See, now he heard Scott and Tom and Dave minister very powerfully. He stood there looking at the picture, and he said, well, he said, I can receive him in the spirit, but he doesn't look like an apostle. See? <laughs> well, hallelujah. That's wonderful. I hope it blew his mind completely out, you know, because on the other hand, if I had stood there and just, you know, had the right kind of a beard on and fiery eyes, and right while he looked at the picture, the picture catches on fire at the eyes and burns holes, and says, wow, what apostles! See, then he never would have related to me as a brother. Now we got back there and met each other, we're able to put our arms around one another, sit down and talk to each other, open our hearts one to another. He wasn't afraid of me as an apostle, but he received me as an apostle. But most of all, he received me as a what? Say it. A brother. The highest of all relationships. And no matter where we go or what you do, never let that concept be lost. Make it real. Let it develop. Let that love flow between you until it can never be lost in your mind, no matter what the pressures are. And refuse to relate to people on any other basis. Oh, you may have to give them honor sometimes because they don't understand. So you call a person doctor, you call them reverend or something on occasion, but in your heart, always know that you're reaching out to him as a brother and you're saying, brother, 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 until one day he stops saying, I'm reverend so-and-so, I'm so-and-so this, I'm that. And he simply says, Joe, Mary, I'm your brother. And you relate on that level, see? Now, if we start with that level, then we see that Jesus said, He that will be chief among you brothers must do what? Become servant. Servant of how many? Oh. 
So we see that's the top level, and every other function brings you down, 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 down. Not status. Not position. Service. Function. Breadth of function. What I saw in the last three days among the brethren as we were discussing the work that they would be doing. What I saw among them is a delightful praising of the Lord as they heard what the other brother's function was coming to be. And as each brother went around and said, I see this is probably my work in God, waiting for it to be confirmed rightly by those in authority to confirm it. But saying is what I see. And I want to say that every one of those brothers just pretty well hit it right on target. God has been dealing with them and they were listening to God and they see what their function will be in the house of God. And we were able to say, Amen, that's right on. And I want you to know that there was nobody sitting in that room saying, Well, my life, how come, how come that isn't what I can do? You see, I'm only getting this deal out of it. Everyone was saying, Praise God, brother, that's your function. Make room for my brother to function. Another one, make room for this brother to function. Make room for this brother to function. Oh, that's life. That's life. When envy and jealousy and little picky eunuchs, when that's gone and nothing is left but that delight at standing there knowing you're loved, knowing you love, and God picks one sovereignly, picks him and says, I have a job for you to do, and here's the gifts that I'm going to bestow upon you. Here's the way you're going to function. And the brother starts functioning and he's recognized by the body and all the brothers and sisters are standing there saying, thank you, Lord, look at him. Look at him do it. Look at him go. Look at those gifts. Hallelujah. See, oh, that's life. Then you have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one body without schism moving throughout this whole earth and filling it with the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. If we start then with the highest of all calling, which is brother. And I hope you understand that brother includes sister. That there be no misconcept here. It's just that we're preaching in the sense of a, like, neither male nor female in Christ. And yet we know the glorious place of women. And we've ministered on that. And the glorious place of men. And we've ministered on that. But when I use the word brother as the relationship, understand that speaking of us men and women. Everyone who knows the Lord personally has come into the family of God and we are children of the Lord. And we are one body. And we are one family. And nothing can break that. It does not matter. You know the Bible says if the eye shall say to the ear or the hand, I don't need you. Is it not therefore of the body? No, it is still of the body if they know the Lord Jesus Christ. So sometimes you're going to run into people who will say, you I don't need. I know Jesus, and my little group over here, we're going to heaven, and you we don't need. All right, that's the eye saying to the hand, we don't need you. Is this group then therefore not of the body? No, it is still of the body, and they are your brothers and your sisters, and they are your family. And you say to them, turn around, say, oh, but we need you, brother. We need you, sister. We love you. You see, the love that we have and the love that God is placing in the church today must rise above 
must rise above the schisms that exist if the church is ever going to truly be one. And it is going to be one because God is raising up a group of people who can love even though they're rejected. Who can love even though they're despised. Who can love even though they're hated. Who can love even though they're tortured and killed. And keep right on loving and saying, Jesus loves you and I love you and it's a brother and we're one. Now that kind of love will prevail. See, But if you're trying to relate to them on the basis of preacher and preacher, that's not so hard to do. We have had ministerial association meetings when I know the minister despised me personally and despised the work that I represented and I despised the work he represented and sometimes despised him personally and yet when we got on the reverend role we could relate. See, here it is, I'm getting up there preaching and I want to tell you there's a certain church down the street everyone knew where it was because, you know, I kind of abounded. I don't want to tell you what street it's on, but it's next to the so-and-so school and across from this grocery store and down from that vacant lot. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. But we're not mentioning any names here, you know, so forth and so on, that kind of thing. And then denounce them, blind this and that and the other thing. And he's down there and I tell you those wild-eyed Pentecostals jumping over benches and falling out windows and so <laughs> You know, so here we are. Now, he's going all through this. He's, you know, so forth. But Ministerial Association Day, especially lunch time. (laughs) Reverend Jones, how have you been? Fine, Reverend Durkin. How have you been? Fine. Your church going well? Beautiful. How are you? Wonderful. What are you doing these days? Well, we're building a big new Sunday school annex. So are we. (laughs) And ours is costing $285,000. Ours is only costing $185,000, but we're putting up a $100,000 fence, too. See, and this is, now this is, but now we're relating, you know. Ha, 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 no, ha, that. Oh, we sure enjoyed this association meeting. Yes, sir, Reverend. Goodbye, Reverend. I want to tell you there's a certain church in this town down there that, see, that's no relationship. Now, that's relating professionally. You can do that. But when you have to relate as brother, then you come off of it, right? You have to say, brother, I got something in my heart. And I've been thinking the wrong thing about you. And I got to get it out there. And I have to tell you I'm sorry. And I have to ask you to forgive me. And whatever I have to do to make it right, I'm going to make it right. Here it is. Then he comes and says, well, brother, I've had something on my heart against you, too, and it's been killing me because my heart is beating with love for you, and I want to love you, and I want you to love me. Let's get this garbage out between us. See, when the relationship is brother, we can't let the garbage stay very long. When the relationship, when we really understand it, then the love has to flow. Amen? But when the relationship is professional, you can be filled with garbage and still go on with the role. I could go on relating as apostle to people and despise them. As long as when I got up to preach, I said the right words. I did it for years. There are people in my congregation I despise. Wish they'd get out and drop dead. Even ask God sometime why he didn't kill them. That's the truth. No, that's a lie. That's what I did, but it's a lie nevertheless. Shouldn't have done it. Terrible. 
but I was relating as pastor to people, and they were getting in my way. But when you relate as brother and sister, then sometimes you might have to be firm. But oh, it's so painful. It hurts so much once God's really got you to that place where brother and sister are the relationship. So we were beginning to speak this last week, the elders meeting, and we were talking about the work of elders. And I explained to the brothers that were there a kind of an idea I have about leadership, and I'm going to lay it on you, because I think you can stand it. I think it's going to shock you at first, but I think it's right, and I think it'll do you good to hear it. I don't ever mean to downgrade our eldership. These are the most wonderful brothers. They love the sheep. I've seen them sacrifice, work with you in tree planting, go tree planting on their own, labor in the businesses. Every one of them have come up through six months in the garden, or the majority of them six months in the kitchen, six months in the, I mean, the thing we laughingly call, you know, what our training is, early training. They've been through that. I never was through it. I went through a different kind of training, but every bit is rigorous. And I know how they love the sheep. And yet the truth is, I think that the people that God raises up to leadership essentially have flaws in them. Oh, they have many good traits, many mighty qualities. They do have an understanding of the Word. They must be apt to teach. They do have love. They do have a capacity to sacrifice because they'd never get there without us seeing that first. But many of them also have flawed characters. Many of them have a streak of hardness in them. But I'll tell you that that's true. If no one else would be able to admit it, but I think many of our blessed elders would, I would tell you it was true of me. Just a streak of real hardness. And also I think some of the elders have in them an ambition. Maybe left over from the world, not all of them, but I'm talking about general qualities that I have found in men who aspire to leadership and become leaders. And ultimately, marvelous leaders. Truly in the pattern of God's Word. But if somebody doesn't instruct them in these things, they may go on to be great leaders in the world's pattern. And therefore, they only create institutions and dead churches. And what we want is a living organism in this place. A living organism that will go out to spread the love of the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere. I think they have an ambitious drive, many of them. I think they like to direct people. I remember saying to my pastor in the early days, I was saved maybe six or eight months, knew that God had called me to preach. And he said something or other. And I said, man, one of these days, pastor, I said, I'm going to go out and build my own church, and then I'll be able to do it the way I think it should be done. The pastor's wife said, that's just how churches get built. You know, and I just was a few days ago reflecting on that, and I remember saying to my dad when I was a little tyke, he whipped me for something, and it wasn't too bad. He just popped me on the seat and said, you go sit in that chair over there in the corner. And I was only about four and a half or something like that, because he died when I was five and a half. might have been five. And I remember saying to him, I said, you just wait till I grow up, man, I'll fix you. 
See? Well, I never should have said that. That was very undiplomatic, and the results that followed proved it. You know, I learned very quickly about that. But here, some 18 years later, I was saying to this pastor, you just wait, and I'm going to go out and build my church, and then I'll fix you. Same thing. See? It was in me there. It stayed in me all of those years. And even though I was a Christian and my life had been changed by Jesus, and I truly was his child and his brother, yet that hardness was just laying there, and I was still waiting to fix my dad. Now, I tell you, to every person that aspires to the work of a bishop, he desires a good thing. But also, I think the people that God raises up or puts down, whichever way you want to look at it, essentially have a flaw in their character. Now, I want to go on and expand on it a little more so you may know what your calling is, brethren. The sheep are required by the Lord to obey the elders. Obey them that have the rule over you. Now, you see, I'm telling you on the one hand that the people that God calls to be elders have an essential flaw in their character somewhere. Maybe not all of them, but all the ones I ever met have. But there may be some around that they don't have that. On the other hand, the sheep, although we're all sheep, but if we're making some kind of reflection, here are the elders and here are those that are not as old in the Lord or, or they have a different calling because elders really a calling. It must be a man old enough in the Lord to be an elder, but he doesn't have to be older than everybody in the flock. Nevertheless, the Bible says, Obey them that have the rule over you. Now I'm saying these men have an essential flaw in their character, but the Bible requires the brothers and sisters to obey them. Now, that flaw may be that they want to direct people, or that flaw may be that they want somebody to sit still while they preach a captive audience, can't go anywhere, all the elders close the doors, don't let the people out, they've got a four-hour sermon here, you know, that kind of thing, see? Or it may be that they've got an essential hardness in them, and as soon as you push them a little harder, say, I'm the elder here, and when I talk, man, you better listen to me, see? Yeah, that kind of, you know, bulldog type of, and sometimes that's it. And the Bible says, to the rest of the brothers, submit yourself to them. Isn't that amazing? Well, I want to tell you something. I think practically every man that gets married has an essential flaw in his character, too. And what that is, is he's a man. A hue man. Now, he's got to be changed into something besides a hue man. So he comes to the Lord, and he becomes a Christian man, but he's still got a lot of human left in him. So he gets married. Some little unsuspecting girl comes along and gets hit over the head with something called love or the will of the Lord is revealed to her. And she says, I'm going to marry him and share my life with him for the rest of my days and so forth. And he's, oh, wonderful. Hi, good. I'm going to be my wife. So he gets married and here he's the first day. Give me a cup of coffee, fix breakfast, sweep the floor, there was wrinkles in the bed last night, clean the ceilings, go out here, I'll be gone back in ten minutes, make sure the suitcases are packed. And then he's just going through this routine, you know, the poor girl says, all right, and then she fails in one place and comes back and says, the Bible says, submit! Oh, man, I tell you, we used to hear this around the ranch all the time. The brothers running around just newly married. Submit, woman! Submit, woman! Submit, woman! You know, I thought that was the only two words they knew, you know. <laughs> but I knew after a while we could teach them 
more words, you know, like submit woman and children, you know. that. <laughs> so anyhow, sometimes when a man is put in the position of an elder, he goes around like that. His main thing is, I have a message which God has laid on my heart this morning. The message is submission. See? We only heard that 23 times last week. Okay. You understand I'm not saying this for my sake, but for your sake. The Bible says you are to submit to them who have the rule over you, and I am one of them guys. Okay. And the truth of the matter is, the Bible does say to do that. Now, doesn't that sound funny? Now, you know, I'm glad that as a family we can begin to see these glories. I don't think I could have preached this two years ago, you know, because it would have started a revolution. Everybody went up, but now we're realizing that real relationship is brother. You know why I can preach this? Because I'm preaching about me. I'm preaching about my elders, but I'm letting them preach their message through me. Because when I talk to them about this, you should have seen those blessed men break down before the Lord and weep and confess and pray that God would never let them forget that they were brothers and that they loved and they wanted to live for your good and they wanted God to cleanse them of anything that was improper in their lives and heal those faults and make them good shepherds over the flock. Oh, they are good shepherds. They are good elders. I know that of a certainty, but I want to tell you how they get to be good elders. I want to tell you how a man gets to be a good man. If he's married, he gets to be a good man if he's got a good woman that knows how to submit herself to him. You know, women many times are made, somehow they have a capacity, a power to be stepped on, to be rudely insulted. To be balled out and to be crushed again and again and again and again and to keep on loving. That love may get hurt, may get bruised. I've seen children rise up and call their mother all kind of names, want nothing to do with the mother for a time. And you call the father too many names, you're going to get a punch in the mouth. I remember my own children did that to me one time. And man, things got hot and heavy around there for a time, you know. But always one thing about my wife, she keeps on loving. Because somehow God has built a capacity in a woman to love that is a miraculous capacity. It is almost beyond exhausting. You can crush the woman though she's utterly broken. You can denude her of all of her spirit. You can take away from her any confidence that she has in herself. And yet that godly woman somehow will hang on and love her children, take back a husband that's become an utter profligate, and somehow build life again and go on. She can forgive beyond belief and keep on submitting and submitting and submitting. And I want to tell you that sometimes in the beginning when a woman learns how to do that, the man takes advantage of it. I want to tell you that's true. And he demands and he commands and he expects 
far beyond the capacity of the woman even to give. And then if she can't do that, he balls her out. Keeps on trying to give. You stop and think what a woman is asked to give in a household. And you'll see the tremendous demands that are placed upon them by just the fact of living. And yet somehow they're able to do it. I don't know how. I never have known how. Said back at times and said, this is the greatest miracle I've ever seen. Notwithstanding, I've heard about eyeballs growing back and our legs being lengthened and lungs being replaced. But nothing is a miracle like the capacity of a woman to submit and to love when she's a godly woman and learns her place. Because that place is the most remarkable place outside of one other thing, which I think they're kind of a parallel and equal to. And every time the husband does something like that, takes advantage of, rides ruthlessly over, harshly demands this, he wounds his wife, but he also drives an arrow into his own soul, and one he can't pull out. He can do anything he wants, but God makes that arrow stick fast in him, and it's got barbs on it that when he tries to jerk it out, he just spreads out and rips and tears, and he has to leave it in there. And then maybe because the pain is there, he goes raging and storming around because he's under this pressure of what he's done, and he yells and screams even more, and pretty soon the arrows are just sticking in him just all over. And then one day I'm going to tell you, he hurts so bad, and he's lost so much blood, and he's so broken, and he realizes the weight of that woman and children continually coming back to him and saying, our life is in your hands. Anything you tell us to do, we'll do. Any place you tell us to go, we'll go. Except for sin. And we'll follow you. And finally that man just utterly breaks. And through all of those wounds, the harshness flows out. The meanness flows out. And nothing is left but a gentle, kindly man able to leap over a wall and run through a troop and defend his family and give his life for them and to stand up to any situation. But it takes that broken, submissive woman training the children to love their father that finally produces that kind of a man. By the same token, I want to tell you there's a reason why God calls the flock of God the sheep. And he calls these elders and apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists, he calls them kind of like shepherds. Depending if you want to give it a generalized kind of a term, they aren't all shepherds in that sense. Because sometimes you got good shepherds and you got not so good shepherds. Now none of these shepherds are hirelings. They're not working for money, not in this ministry. But I want to tell you something. They're working not by constraint, but of a willing heart to be sure. But sometimes they have some of those traits. And the Bible talks about the elders that rule well shall be counted worthy of double honor, as some versions say double pay. But the elders that rule well, well then that means there must be some elders who don't rule well. Some elders that I knew were elders, downright stinkers. You know, they didn't know what they were doing. But in later years you'd meet them, you'd find a mellowed, gentle, broken man able to rule well. The meanness was gone. The confidence was gone. The self-confidence. That ability to say, I know how to get it done find them they don't know how to get anything done don't even hardly know how to get up out of bed in the morning you know so forth 
the sheep are somehow little unresisting animals. They don't turn on you and rip an arm off when you you go up to a dog and he's a nice guy and so forth and you're petting him and he's wagging his tail and so forth, you know, and he's all there and so forth. You haul off and you grab his ear and go, <clears throat> and there'll be a, <clears throat> see, and you do that again and you better get your arms out of the way because there won't be any arms left if you don't. See, he's able to quite well take care of himself. Same thing will be true with a goat, you know, I had a billy goat. And, uh, boy, oh boy, I never believed all the stories about a billy goat until one time I bent over to check some grass there and the next thing I hear the ground starting to shake and I'm looking, I hear this thing is coming, dun, 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 dun. and man, I jumped and he sailed right on past. If he'd have ever connected, I'd be the first man in orbit and no rocket ship either. These things can't defend themselves. But a sheep, you can clip it, take all of its wool, and leave it utterly defenseless against the storm if you want. You can clip all of its wool off right in the winter and turn it out against the storm, and it'll just quietly die. Bleed a little bit, not even very loud. Yes. <laughs> you can cut it. You can burn it. You can mash it, break its legs, kick it, and just quietly goes on and keeps on, for the most part, loving the shepherd and following the shepherd. But I tell you, every time you wound a sheep, and a lot of us have got a lot of sheep that are wounded down through the years, and we look back on those years, and we see the things we said, sometimes you have to say some things that are pretty heavy. You see that in the Bible. At times there's a time to rebuke a person. But I'm talking about when you set it out of self-interest or self-purpose. And you wound a sheep. And you break the sheep. Some of them I think we've killed and if God didn't raise them to life again, they'd have perished. Somehow he did raise them to life again. And they go on functioning. But every time you do it, it's like an arrow of the Almighty sticks in the soul. And then another and another and another. And finally, the burden of that wounding gets so heavy, you cry out to God, and I can see what made Moses do it. You remember Moses' cry? He said, oh God, the burden of this people is too heavy for me. Now, if you don't give me help, kill me. I can't carry this load any longer. And yet, 40 years before, or 60 years before, Moses knew he was supposed to deliver the people of God. So he knew what his calling was. He knew he was to be a deliverer. And yet Moses, at that time, he didn't say the burden of this people is too heavy for me, kill me. He said, um, well, Lord, I see you made a right choice this time. That's just about right. And I said, I guess I'll go out and deliver those three million people. Let me see, where will I start? Okay. Mm-hmm. There's an Egyptian striving with a Hebrew. Well, I know how to start delivering the people of God. Walk up to this Egyptian and <clears throat> fall dead, buried him in the sand. But there's the beginning of deliverance. Now, is there anything else I can do around here to get this job done? Because I really know how to get it done. I've got training in all the arts of war. I know history. I know politics. I know everything there is to know. And God's called me, giving me a special calling. Uh-huh. Next day, a couple of Hebrews fighting. Well, we know Hebrews shouldn't fight with each other because they'd be brethren. Uh, brethren, uh, I want you to break it up now because... Uh, 
I'm the deliverer here, right? I'm the guy who says yes and no. God called me to do that. And uh, so break it up and be brothers. One of them turns around and said, if we don't, you're going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? He said, surely this thing is known. And it's going to be back to the ears of Pharaoh. And I'm going to split out of this community. <laughs> and for 40 years, he's on the backside of the desert over some sheep. And I can imagine this fiery leader who is going to be the humblest man, the meekest man on the face of the earth. That's what the Bible says. The meekest of all men on the face of the earth. I can see him when he first gets the sheep. Jethro says, married one of his daughters, and Jethro said, well, we're going to give you some sheep, and you're going to be a shepherd over these sheep. Don't worry anything about it. I know everything there is about animal husbandry. You learned it back in Egypt, right? Okay, there's your shepherd's staff, right. Now, here's some sheep, and they're going out there. One of them starts to wander off. Hey, Jack, get back in line. All right. Pretty soon, he's sitting there at night, and one of these sheep, he's kicked, you know, up beside him and still hurt. Maybe he got a lump on his head where he whacked it with a staff. And says, Bah. Another one comes up there and, <laughs> Little by little, those sheep are learning the gentler touch of Moses. And pretty soon he's saying, Billy, come on now. And pretty soon they're, following him wherever he goes. He's learned to be a shepherd. One sheep is lost. He goes out looking in the wilderness. Make sure the 99 are safe and he's learning to be a shepherd. You follow what I'm saying? And then God says, Now Moses, you're ready for my people. I still had some lessons to learn. And later on he would cry out that that also got mighty heavy. Well, I want to tell you, you are good sheep because you have put up with me. Some of you are new and you don't know me, but you have put up with me for five years now, some of you five and a half, others four and a half, three and a half, two and a half, some I don't even know. But many times I've carried you in my heart when I've been long gone and I wondered how you were doing and how it fared with you. And there was not a one I heard that left for whatever reason they left, that I wasn't concerned with their going and their coming. But if I have become anything at all, God's Spirit, certainly. God the Father, certainly. But it has been His working through the sheep that has broken me to where I simply love. If I were today to bring some of the other brothers before you, they could tell you the same thing. That your gentle obedience, sometimes you got a little playful and you went gambling off in the rocks or something and they had to dash up and get you back and sometimes they might have whacked you with a staff. Maybe sometimes you needed it, I don't know. But sometimes they might have done it out of chagrin or anger or frustration and you popped back in the flock and you just kept going along. But little by little I have seen in these elders the great mellowing, the great gentling, the great kindness coming into their hearts. Because 
they have had a submissive body. And they have had wives learning submission. Some of them have. And it has made men of great compassion and men of great humility and men who have no confidence in themselves at all but in the Lord only. Now we are raising up new elders. These men have also demonstrated great qualities of compassion. Every one of them, as far as I know, could have gone out in the world and gotten themselves jobs and nothing wrong with that. It may be God's calling you someday they will do that. But every one of them could have gone out in the world and gotten themselves jobs because they received good training here and some of them had good training before they came. And they'd make anywhere from eight to 20,000 a year. I know that because some of them been offered that kind of jobs. And they have elected to stay here because they had a calling in God to stay here. They are men given to the concern and the compassion to the welfare of the sheep, the welfare of their brothers, the welfare of their family. They live for that. And yet I want to tell you that they have things to work out in their lives. And that's sometimes, unless you understand that, it puzzles you sometimes. See, you get a little aggravated. I have to remember. Sometimes I hear things at times that I should get offended at. But I don't get offended. I don't choose to get offended at. And I want you to choose never to get offended at anything. Except the work of the devil. Get plenty offended at that. Get boiling mad at that. Turn your whole spirit loose at that. Don't get offended at your brothers. And don't get offended at the elders. It is God's choosing that has called them. It is God's raising them up that has placed them in their positions. And for the most part, God has worked out 90% of the problems, but they do have some problems left. And they'll have some problems 20 years from now, and they'll have some problems 40 years from now, if the Lord waits that long. But I charge you before God, as you have been kind to me, as you have submitted yourself to me, as you have hearkened to my preaching and my teaching and my work among you and you put up with my mistakes and errors and I've made plenty of it and sometimes had to confess the dumb things that I did and yet you kept on loving me and you kept on serving the office that God has given me and you've gone out and done the things that I felt had to be done. You've listened to those decisions. Every one of you could have rebelled said, no, we're not going to do that. But that isn't the heart that God has given you. The heart that God has given you is to build the work of God. And every time I come back, I see the seats pushed further back against the wall. I keep saying, we've got to send people out. I know we're going to send 200 people out in the next four or five months. But you know what I know? I don't think it's going to make a lot of difference at all. I think it's just going to... Because you're doing the work of God. Your hearts are given to it. And then I'm going to take, not because I want to take, but because God is calling me to take, we're going to take away from you some elders that you've grown used to. They're going to remain elders here, to be sure, even as I'm an elder here. But they're going to have to go out into the world and minister to other bodies as well as still minister to this body. They're going to have to be set free to have more time to seek the Lord because there's a body forming in which we will come together to seek God over these matters and bring back that which God shows us. We want to go on in God and take you on in the Lord. 
We could go on preaching the principles which God has given us here and results would go on happening and people go on being saved and the work of God, but it'd become an institution. Now we want to go deeper into the heart of God and receive that which God has for us and bring it back to you and give it to you. And so it is necessary for me to set these men free because I tell you of a certainty and you will see this to be so in time that some of these men are on their way to manifesting the apostolic office. Some of these men we are now going to recognize in the prophetic office because we see that it has established itself in them. Some in the office of teacher, others in the office of pastor. And these men are entering into the fivefold ministry. Our brother Ron has already been ordained in the office of evangelist. Brother Leroy is already in the office of prophet, but others are being raised up and some are moving into a different office, not a higher office. I don't think there is a higher office. I think they're just offices. But they're moving into that. And they're going to go out and minister to a wider body. I wonder if I'd be able to tell you a story of how God is working. It was told to me the other day by my fellow brother, pastor, up in McKinleyville, Al Tomlin, story of how we came together, most of you know, how God spoke to him when one night he was puzzled about what to minister on the nature of the true church, and he was dealing with the offices, and he'd simply run out of something to, to preach to his people, and he didn't understand the scriptures. He read them, and he knew what they meant, but he didn't know what they really meant. He said he'd been praying for about, I think, six hours. I don't remember, somewhere about two o'clock in the morning. said that God spoke to him very clearly and said, now it's time for you to meet my servant Jim Durkin. And he met me, and God revealed to him what my work was in the body. And since there's been a blessed and wonderful growing fellowship that has blessed us both. Well, this September he went to Canada, a little place called Banff, on a hunting trip. And while he was on this hunting trip, he went to a little Pentecostal church on a Sunday. It was named the Apostolic Pentecostal Church of Western Canada. And they believe in apostles and prophets, but they just don't know any. They, but they believe they should exist and do exist, but they don't know where... They are, but they have opened the door in their hearts for them. And after the service was over, he went up. As a matter of fact, he said the preliminary part of the service was very nice. But when the pastor began to preach, he said a most peculiar feeling took hold of him. It was like a time clock turned him back a year because he said the pastor got up and said, I'm going to preach on the nature of the true church. And he said that was the title of the sermon that he began ministering on a year ago that led him into the relationship that he presently has with me as a series of sermons. And he said the pastor began to open up the topics, and he said it sounded like almost the same sermon. It was a very peculiar kind of a feeling. So he went up after the message was over, and he said, Pastor, you know, I congratulate you on the sermon. Surely enjoyed it. But he said, I want to tell you, it's very peculiar, because a year ago I was preaching on the same thing, and some unusual things have happened in my life as a result of it. Well, the pastor said, I just appreciate that. And he said, say, we're going to have a potluck this afternoon. Why don't you come to it? Okay. So he goes home, Al does, and Barbara, they get some stuff to bring it to this potluck, have a very good time of fellowship. Sometime during the day, I think it was at the potluck, while the pastor is talking with Al, he says, I'd like to talk with you later in some length, some depth. He said, I've got something on my heart I want to lay out, and I think I should be speaking to you about it. So they decide to meet that night after the meeting in the parsonage. While they're there, a hitchhiker comes in, big pack on his back, says, I need a place to stay for the night. I'm a Christian. Are there any of your people who can put me up for the night? The pastor says, well, you don't have to go anyplace. You just come to my house, and I'll put you up for the night. 
So after the meeting's over that night, they're all three sitting down together, and a pastor explains the Lord has laid this message on his heart, the nature of the true church. And so he said, do you know anything about this? He explains what's going on in his heart. So Al tells him the whole story of what happened to him. And all the time he's talking, this hitchhiker saying, Amen. Hallelujah. Praise God. That's right. And so finally they turn around to him and say, Well, brother, do you know anything about this subject? Yes, he said, I do. He said, I belong to a church in Portland, Oregon called the Prince of Peace Church. Now, if you know the history of what happened up there, you'll see the sovereign hand of God working. He said, I was there. He said, when Jim and the brothers came by and established order in our church and established apostolic authority, he said, now we're beginning to move in that authority and send people out. Now, since that time, tapes have gone up there, and I understand now the man has written back, and he's trying to bring together several of those congregations in one meeting and wants Al and I to come up there and begin ministering truth. Now, I want to tell you something, that all over the earth God is working, but I can't go to the places that are opening up. In Africa, there's a call to go to Africa. We have this letter my brother, which Gary Todorov was showing me the other day, says, I know that God has made us a co-worker with you. Brother said, read Acts, I think it was 19, 1 to 6, isn't that where it's Macedonia? He had a dream about it, come over and help us. He said, brother, you must come. He said, this is an urgent call. Please come and help us. He said, the tapes that we're receiving, he said, are changing the lives of people and congregations are being saved as a result of it. He said, we need you here. See, I don't know what all these things mean, but I know the doors are opening everywhere, and I can't go personally. Now God has given to us in this ministry mighty brothers, mighty sisters that have been raised up and God has laid his hand upon them and they have an apostolic calling. They have a prophetic calling. They have an evangelistic calling, a teaching calling, a pastoral calling. And they're going to be set aside tonight for that calling. They're going to be set free and they're going to begin moving throughout the body, and then bringing back from that wide range of oversight in the body, they're going to be bringing back to this body that which they have seen and teaching you here and training you here so your eyes will be open for the time when you begin to move out on your own because that's what's going to happen to many, many, many of you. This morning, I wish to tell you that God is raising up elders to replace these men who will now begin to move out into a larger breadth of ministry. These elders whom God is raising up, whereas I have seen to put them down, that is exactly what I intended to do, because I want you to understand, though they rule over you in the Lord, and that is their calling of God, and I know that most of them would avoid that if they could, because they know what that means, and maybe yet they would not avoid it either. The kind of a delicate balance there, and I don't know how to divide it rightly, completely. Yet I know of a certainty that God has prepared these men and called these men, and they have been confirmed in that office, and we know who they are and what their calling is. And I know that they are broken men. I wish you could have seen the weeping, the gentleness, the tenderness, the kindness that these men express one to another. Not all the problems are solved, but so many of them are. They have learned to be real brothers. Their wives have learned to be real sisters. They love. They need to be loved, and they recognize their need for that love. And today, somehow, I don't know how God does this, 
He has made it clear to my heart and to the hearts of the elders that have gone on before that these men are true elders and their wives are true elders' wives. And I tell you that I know in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, though the Bible commands us to lay hands quickly upon no man or don't be quick to lay hands and ordain men, we have not been quick. We have tried these men in menial jobs, these women in menial jobs, and they have done it and done well. We have watched God deal with them. We have watched them make their errors, their mistakes, their failures. We have watched them act brashly, foolishly, sillily, and gradually come to that beautiful place of beginning to discern how to move as God's elders. Bless God's people. I say not all the problems are solved, but you're safe in their hands. Their decisions will be good decisions because they have learned how to seek a multitude of counselors before they make decisions. And not only that, they know they remain submitted to those elders that have gone on before and to my authority generally. So they know that this is the order it must be and those over them can correct them in the Lord. So the body is safe in their hands and the body will go on growing and developing. And if you leave this place and go out to a city far away and I were able to send one of these newest of elders to you, you would be safe in their hands because they have been tested and they have been tried. And though there are some problems yet, I tell you so many of them have been solved, so quick are their spirits to break that when they realize they're wrong, they'll only too quickly come to you and too quickly confess to the body that they have made errors. That's what makes men great. Not do they make good decisions. Nobody makes good ones all the time. Matter of fact, most of the time I think if God didn't cover up our dumbness, the whole body would blow up. I know that's true of myself. But I know that somehow he stands me up here and he says, Jim, I put you here to do it. And I have to stand up here and decide something sometimes. I say, God, give me peace in my heart. And there seems to be a peace come in my heart. And most of the time it turns out they're right. Sometimes it turns out they're unbelievably crazy. I look back and I say, how could I ever have done a crazy thing like that? And yet somehow it's like it didn't affect the body at all. You know, here's the decision. Boom, boom, boom. Then all these things happen. And it looks like the whole thing will blow apart. Nothing blows apart. body just keeps on going along and building and developing. I stand back there and say, oh, God, how I see your grace operating. Well, trust your elders. They're going to make wrong decisions sometimes, but it's not going to hurt the body. Not going to blow anything up. Don't get uptight. Don't get bugged out. Don't get bummed out. It doesn't mean anything. They're standing there in that position because God put them there, and I'm going to tell you something. You wouldn't want to be there because it is a mighty funny place to be. Somebody says, here, quick. The whole body's about to blow up and blow up from the space and fall over the cliff. The whole thing's going down the drain. Besides that, there's no finances, no money and everything. And inflation is taking off. The jobs all have failed. Tell us what to do. <laughs> you know, well, if once in a while they don't make a good decision. Wow, man. Be thankful you're not there. See, they have to be there. And sometimes they don't hear the Lord's voice right. And they think he said that way when he really said that way. And so they start off down this way. But the Lord also is the great shepherd. Amen? And he just... Somehow they say, Wow, Lord, I thought I was going that way, but I guess I wasn't, huh? See? 
the next thing the body's moving along all right. Now it's as you trust them, as you submit to them, as you, no matter what you think they're doing haywire, you come to them and show them what you think, you feel that that's wrong, but when they decide, you say, brother, I'm glad you're our elder. Oh, how thankful I am that God put you there, and I'm with you 100%. I'm submitted to you. I love you, and I hold you up. If I would translate that back into terms, come up to them, rub up close to them, and say, bah, bah. Don't be afraid to be a sheep. 